From the beautiful Art House Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga. My guest today is Missy Wallace. Missy Wallace started a thing called the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, and you have heard me talk about that on the podcast. They were a sponsor earlier this season. Um, They're doing amazing things here in Nashville, and Missy started it all and runs that ship. It's so cool. And uh, I was so glad that she was able to come over and talk with me a little bit about what led to her um, taking this role. Because you don't jump into some institute for faith and work like that. That's not a, that's not like a job you just decide to go get. Um, that has to be a passion that's on you. And it probably is on you because of something that drove you to thinking about that. And, um, I love the way that she so eloquently talks about both what led her to this, this idea and this position. Um, but what drives our ideas of work and where we get our value, what it means uh, to contribute to a society, to a culture, to a family. I felt like we talked for three hours, and I looked up and was like, oh, we just talked for 35 minutes. She clearly talks about this stuff a lot, and it just, boom, no small talk, man. She's like deep waters right away, and I love that. It was so fun. You're going to get a lot out of this. You might. This is one you might want to listen to a few times, because every third sentence she says is like, I got to write that down. I got to write that down. That's so good. Missy's amazing, and uh, it's been an honor to work with them this past year, and I think you'll see why. Um, so I'm so excited that uh, she came by. Um, I also want to tell you about a couple things. Um, my new album, The Painted Desert, came out this past Friday. It's my favorite thing I've ever done, and I would love for you to listen to it. So please do that. And uh, if you like it, go to iTunes and give it some stars, hopefully a lot. Um, go to Spotify, make a playlist, share it with your friends. Anything that you guys can do to help Instagram, tweet, Facebook, um, links to the album would just be so helpful for me. Uh, you are my marketing team. So thank you guys so much for supporting that project. I also want to tell you about the Tokens Show. Uh, the Tokens Show uh, is a live variety show held three or four times a year in the Nashville area. It tells stories through song and word that give us tangible tools for sowing seeds of justice, peace, and beauty in our world. Tokens has had Andrew Peterson, Sandra McCracken, Michael Gunger, Matthew Perryman-Jones, a bunch of authors and musicians and thought leaders. It's really a wonderful show. They're giving Pivot listeners a chance to come to the annual Thanksgiving at the Ryman Show on November 18th. Um, We've got a handful of tickets ready to give away to you. If you're not in Nashville, maybe a weekend trip to see the city might be exactly what your Thanksgiving break needs. And it is, and I'd love to tell you where to go eat. So what we're doing is we're giving these tickets away via Instagram. So if you can post a picture of what a Pivot means to you, whichever is the most inspiring picture uh, is what we're going to award the tickets for. And if you can tag me at Andrew Osinga, and if you can put the hashtag tokens pivot. Uh, again, that's at Andrew Osinga, hashtag tokens pivot, and you can win tickets uh, to the Thanksgiving at the Ryman tokens show on November 18th. Good excuse to come to Nashville and hang out. So with that said, I'm excited for you to get to hear this chat I had with my friend, Missy Wallace. so much for doing this. Sure. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Well, will you, would you start maybe by reading uh, that quote you just shared with me? Sure. I'm going to read a quote out of a book called Every Good Endeavor written by Catherine Alsdorf and Tim Keller that's really inspiring to me. 
and it's the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves and secure our identity through work, for we are already proven and secure. It also frees us from a condescending attitude towards less sophisticated labor and from envy over more exalted work. All work now becomes a way to love the God who saved us freely, and by extension, a way to love our neighbor. Hmm. That's great. Mm. Okay, so what I know of your story is a number of people saying, you've got to talk to Missy. You've got to talk to Missy. And we've met a handful of times in passing, but this is our first real conversation. And so what I know about you is that everyone says, yeah, she worked in the private sector. She had this big job in the private sector. Everybody always talks about the private sector. What was the private sector for you? Hmm. That's funny because I feel like, goodness, my private sector's work has expired because it was quite a while ago. But um, coming straight out of undergrad, I worked in banking for a few years. Okay. And then I received an MBA. And then I worked for a company called the Boston Consulting Group and got to do that in Chicago, New York, Singapore, Bangkok, and really have the opportunity to interact with companies around the world on all types of business problems. And it was incredibly fulfilling. Um, and then after that, I worked for a couple more companies, including um, Time Inc. when it was part of just becoming part of Time Warner and the AOL merger, et cetera. Wow. Um, so a variety of experiences um, in the private sector. And what did you, what did you do in those roles? Mm-hmm. Um, in banking, I did credit analysis and marketing and things like that. And when I moved into consulting, um, the best way to think about it is we were um, – well, let me think how to phrase this. When I worked in consulting, we were deployed to various businesses to take advantage of opportunities or to solve problems. And so on occasion, businesses need outsiders because they need – um, either a different point of view or they just need more arms and legs getting the work done Yeah. Um, to look for a way to take advantage of an opportunity, um, a new business sector, um, growth opportunities, et cetera, or look for a way to solve a particular problem um, in, a, in a business unit to help keep them profitable. Yeah. So you'd sort of parachute in, essentially be a hired gun employee for a little bit of this other company mm -hmm. and help them get through whatever season they were in and then move Exactly. Do, do, the, do exactly. that again at some place else. Exactly. Got it. So you're doing that, um, but now you no longer do that kind of work. What led to your transition into the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work? I know that's a long journey. Mm -hmm. It is a circuitous route. And um, if any of you are listening that knew me in my old jobs and you think, well, what in the world? That woman doesn't <laughs> represent faith and work at all. Please know that I know, <laughs> and it's part of my journey, um, and it's why I need the gospel. Um, so when we moved to Nashville um, in 2001, after having lived um, in New York for the few years before that, in Asia and Chicago for a few years before that, um, we were coming back to Nashville. My husband is a sixth-generation Nashvilleian, and we knew we always wanted to raise our children here. We were about to have our third child. And I hung a shingle and started doing consulting um, here in Nashville just on my own. And in my first project on a media business down here, the head of the project said, could you come help me with this little nonprofit question for just a couple of weeks? And so... It was with a school that had been a K through eight for a long time and was adding a high school. Huh. And in I got Nashville? in Nashville. 
And I got the opportunity to help with a business question that just took a couple of weeks to answer. And at the end of that, they said, will you stay full time? And interestingly, I said yes almost immediately. Hmm. No pros and cons list, no great deliberation, no huge salary negotiation. It was more than basically a 50% pay cut, um, maybe even more than that. I can't remember. Um, but it was dramatic how quickly I said yes, given what a different trajectory, both income and career-wise, it was putting me on. And in retrospect, I now understand I said yes so quickly because I had some bad faith and work theology. Um, over the course of my career, I had accepted um, Christ as my own um, in high school and really then in college and early out of college, um, put him in the trunk. And then over the course of the next 12 or 15 years, um, over a course of various life experiences, um, Jesus made it to the back seat of the car. <laughs> um, and occasionally he would lean over kind of on my convenience, on my terms when it's working for me. Um, and I realized when I took the job in the nonprofit that um, what I was looking for was a way to do work in a more meaningful way in God's mm -hmm. hierarchy of work. So I was trying to do good instead of make more profits, but I didn't understand that there were um, there was a really good theology around market economies and that there was a really good theology around um, you should be working in your area of call and be doing that for God, that I had a hierarchy that had the um, pastors and the missionaries on the A team and the helping professions on the B team, everyone else on the C team, except for investment bankers, venture capitalists, corporate lawyers. And I really saw myself that I had been working on the D team for basically my whole life, and I was getting a promotion to the B team. Um, and that that was and part of my faith that journey. Job. That's why. Now, that being said, I love that job. I ended up working in that job for more than a decade. It completely was in my sweet spot of my mm. gifts and talents. And so I know, God, and, and I probably couldn't have started National Institute for Faith and Work without this nonprofit background. It was um, incredibly fulfilling work. Um, and so I know that God was writing that that story, even if I had bad theology and did not, um, you know, go to him to try to get guidance and, and whether or not to take that job. But it ended up, I was working with unbelievable people, um, getting to work on something with very mission minded. Um, and it was an, a great joy and honor. Um, in the middle of that um, decade plus that I spent there, my oldest daughter um, became incredibly ill. Mm. Um, it has a good ending, but she was actually diagnosed terminal, oh my and gosh. I was off of work for three years during her battle, and she was out of school, or out of mainstream school for quite a while. How old was she? Um, she was eight, and oh she's my 20 now, and she's thriving, and it has, has a great ending, and I'm aware that not everybody's stories get a happily ever after, so I'm very sensitive to being... Um, thankful for that. Um, but that time was a hard time, and that is where all of a sudden Jesus in the backseat on my terms, um, when I'm in the mood, didn't work anymore. Mm. I had to really come to terms with, do I believe what I say I believe or do I not? Because if I'm going to lose my daughter, then I've really got to come to terms with that. And so um, that's when I kind of jokingly say Jesus moved to the front seat um, and 
that became a great faith journey for me to really deepen my faith and not be on cruise control faith anymore. <clears throat> and in that journey, I ended up in some divinity classes. Oh, and wow. that is where I was exposed to the litany of faith and work literature um, that shows that work was actually created by God. We were actually created to work. Um, it's actually part of the Genesis account that all of our work is bringing structure out of chaos, just like God did. And it completely blew my mind. So what kind I, of things were you reading? Where, mm-hmm. What is this literature? You know, there's a lot of good books out there, but the one that was the first big aha for me was was this book called Every Good Endeavor. And I jokingly call it a beach read theology because it's not <laughs> it's not one of those theological texts that you start as you're, you know, winding down at the end of the day and it's so dense you can only get through a couple of paragraphs yeah, before you, you go to, to sleep unless you're a great you know theologian and intellectual which i'm not um so it blew my mind to realize that oh my goodness i did not have the right mentality when i worked in consulting it really made me long to be able to do that job again, but with a different mindset of just shine light on darkness wherever you are. Look for brokenness that not only are individuals are broken, but structures are broken. I was working in broken structures all the time. Mm. And um, it doesn't... I. I think a lot of people think faith and work means, have you told your cube mate about Christ? But it's just so, or um, are you taking care of the poor? Um, And they don't see the nuance. And of course, those things are good things, but they don't see the nuance in between of the work itself matters. The spreadsheet itself matters. I had to, when I worked for BCG, I would do spreadsheets into the wee hours of the morning often trying to create decks to solve problems and prove points, the spreadsheets themselves mattered. They were a way of taking chaos and bringing structure to it Mm. to try to show some truth. And so to be able to have had this um, mentality, I probably could have done um, the job with more fulfillment and understanding that I was part of something bigger um, than myself. So it wasn't like you needed to quit your job and go be a missionary. It was just how you approached that role would have been different. Yeah, quite the opposite. I feel like I've started this nonprofit to help people stay in their jobs, huh. um, to help people understand that they are wired um, certain ways and that if everybody was off trying to do nonprofits and quote-unquote formal ministry, um, who's actually doing the work? Who's actually getting food on the table? Who's actually making tables? Who's actually um, inventing electricity? I mean, if you just... It's also, it's very interesting to realize um, Jesus was alive for 33 years, and only three years of those was he in formal ministry. He mm. made tables himself for a long time, and the large percentage of his parables, they're in work contexts, and he interacted with thousands and thousands of people, yet he only called 12 into formal ministry. Um mm. The entire Genesis account, the creation account, so interesting to look at it. It's, God is working from the very first day, and he would make structure, and then he would fill it, and he would make structure, and then he would fill it, and he would call it good. And then he said to him, he made us, and he said, I'm in you. Go out and do this and try to call it good. Go out, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion, um, taken in context um, with some of the original language and I'm not a theologian, however this was taught to me, um, that can be understood, not just go out and have kids, but actually um, go out and create flourishing. 
And if you think of all of our jobs as take chaos, bring structure, go out and create flourishing, you can apply that to anything. I mean, imagine our world with no banking. If we were trying to still, you know, trade goats for, I don't know, bread, right? Our, our communities would be chaos. We have hundreds of millions of people living in the world now. We need structure to help us do financial transactions. And so if you start to understand systems as what is the creational ought to be for those, what does banking reflect in God's character? It reflects his um, order. It reflects, it reflects his um, desire to distribute. It reflects um, a lot of things about God. Wow. And of, it is broken. We are broken. Systems are broken. But if people can start to engage their work thinking about the system that they're in and what creational goodness might it be reflecting and why might it be important, and then where is it? Where is it broken? And where can I shine light on the brokenness? It's an energizing way to see your work. Wow. Okay, so walk me through your story to get to the point where you're spending your time talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you're working in a school. What was your role at the school? So I had a variety of roles. Okay. But um, after I came back from my daughter's illness, I was working in college counseling. Okay. Um, before I had been doing some things to set the school up and marketing and admissions and business and things like that. But now I'm working in college counseling. Adored that job. Mm. Complete and total privilege to sit with parents and students and try to figure out their next steps. And as I was doing that, um, I kept noticing achievement idols. And by that, I mean our great desire to define ourselves by what we do. And it was putting a, a mirror up to myself of how much of my past, both educational and vocational, had been spinning on the gerbil wheel saying, I matter, I matter, I matter because I make A's or because I do this well at work or because, because, because. So I started trying to think about how could we flip the question in college counseling Um, instead of saying, what would make you successful? What would make you better? How are you wired? How will you be happy? Let's flip the question. What gifts have you been given? How are you part of a larger unfolding story? How could you serve that larger unfolding narrative? Um, And when you flip the question, and I I did that by, because these achievement idols, they're putting a mirror up to myself, right? I'm not, um, I I was living those qualities too. And when the questions flipped, it started to think, okay, what if it makes us not the center? Um, in, In my case, it made God the center. Now these center, not center. (laughs) In my case, it made God the center. These kids didn't all share the same beliefs I have. Their families didn't all share the beliefs I have. So I didn't um, root it in Christian theology in that um, setting, but I was able to say, um, you know, where you get accepted to college doesn't define you. Mm. So have you thought about what defines you? What defines your identity? What do you want to define your identity? So anyway, I started in divinity school because I thought I was creating a nonprofit around um, the college question and changing the college question. But when I was exposed to all the faith and work literature, I felt um, a very strong nudge or call, and I felt that God was leading me to say the college question is part of a bigger question, 
which is what is work and why are we created to work? And the college question is just a piece of that. And it was really a big aha moment um, of, of finding the literature in the middle of this um, master's class hmm. um, around um, missional study, uh, missional strategies that I was taking. Um, and I was like, oh my goodness, I've had it wrong the whole time. Was it kind of a, was it a slow dawning or was it like a light bulb moment? That was actually a light bulb moment. And really? I would say I've not had a whole lot of lightning bolt moments in life, but that one felt like a light bulb moment. It felt like, oh my goodness, how have I missed this? How have I missed this? I've got to help other people not miss this. And so it loops back to the sick child in a circuitous way that when you're editing this podcast, I don't know how you're going to make this story work, but (laughs) it loops back to to the sick child in a circuitous way because as I'm having this lightning bolt and as I'm studying a model of a center for faith and work that's in New York City, that I'm feeling like, we need, we need to copy this. We need to do this in Nashville. We need to get this word out in Nashville. Um, my daughter re-mainstreamed in a school just as a pastor from New York City who had been very closely attached to the Center for Faith in New York City was moving down to Nashville to take over a church. And that's and his, Scott, right? And that's Scott Sauls, who I think has been on the podcast, yeah. yes. And his daughter was also um, new to the same school at the same time. Um, and so my daughter is re-mainstreaming in this school attached to this church that Scott is taking over. And so I was able to sit down with Scott and say, I've written this crazy plan for this thing, and I don't really know if this is an academic project or if this is something that I feel called to do. Um, I'm not quite sure if this is the God's leading or if this is just me having a good time. Can you take a look at this? Yeah. We had just a really powerful moment where Scott said he had been praying we could do this in Nashville in seven years. Hmm. And like what said, what's your name? Like, who are you? And so <laughs> Scott and I spent about a year um, thinking through it and thinking through how we could launch this. And so it was launched into Nashville about three years ago. Okay. And what does it do? Hmm. Yes. So it's called the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, and we exist to equip, um, connect, and mobilize individuals and groups to groups or organizations to figure out how does their day-to-day Christian faith matter to work. And so we, at, at the bottom level, we're trying to help people shine light on darkness, help organizations think about how to shine light on darkness systematically for the flourishing of Nashville. And so we have, um, our biggest thing we do is we have a 10-month intensive for influencers around Nashville. We bring 30 people at a time together. We're part of a network of about 10 cities that do this. We bring 30 influencers at a time together, and they study faith and work intensely in community, um, culminating in a project to shine light on darkness in their sphere of influence. Hmm. Um, at the same time, they're learning more about their city. So, for instance, our group this week has a field trip that includes a walking history tour of Nashville. And we'll be in the civil rights room understanding the lunch counter sit-ins. And a couple months, we'll um, be under. We'll be in music studios. We'll be having a field trip in the jail system. We'll be understanding the healthcare. How do we become the Silicon Valley um, of healthcare here in Nashville? So that is one of our significant undertakings. And what's that program called? That program is called Gotham. Okay. 
And that's one of our significant undertakings. Another thing we do is we have forums and lunch and learns and kind of one-off things. Come for an hour and get a taste and learn a bit more. And actually, if I can put in a shameless plug, we have our biggest event of this season on October 4th where Andy Crouch, who's um, nationally known um, both for faith and work elements, for helping people understand creative calling elements as well, he's coming to talk about stewarding influence. And so Mm. we'll be talking about a model of no matter what your sphere of influence, how are you stewarding it instead of trying to make it serve you? And so... um, that will be on October 4th. And um, other and things the, we do. Where's that? Mm-hmm. That's at Clementine, which I'm super excited about. Clementine's, a, um, to me, symbolizes um, a lot of Nashville's growth. It's on Charlotte Avenue, right on the edge of gentrification. And it's an old church that's now become a commercial event space. Hmm. And so in and of itself, it symbolizes so much of the good and the tension yeah. around stewardship and around city growth and um, all that city growth can bring, both good and hard. Yeah. Um, and then we have an entrepreneur support group, and I love entrepreneur support group. It is, um, it is a group of six to ten CEOs that meets over a ten-week period and goes through a video curriculum of what might re- – redemptive entrepreneurship look like? What might entrepreneurship for the gospel look like if you're not printing Bible pages or doing an overt Christian business? And it also uses the gospel to help the pendulum swings of I am amazing, I am terrible. I am amazing, I am terrible. Sounds like CEOs must be songwriters. Yeah, that's true in music too. Um, So it's, it's a neat program as well. Yeah. You, you were telling me a little bit before we started recording, but what are some of the main things that you're trying to impart to these people uh, in the course of all these different programs? I mean, the main thing we're trying to impart is just that the gospel matters and that heart change leads to community change that leads to world change. And So heart leads to community, leads to, to world. world. I love that. And we are the scattered church Monday to Friday. And so I used to go sit in the pews and I would hear blessed are the meek. And I would be like, meek's not going to work tomorrow at work. I'll get fired. That's not going to work. So I didn't know what to do with that. So I'll just keep them apart. I'll just not think about them together. And so really, we're just trying to help people live more integrated lives and to think of themselves as serving the work rather than the work serving them. And I feel like the Western culture has told us a bunch of lies about work. And um, one of the lies is if you find your passion, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, I've heard that. And I don't know anybody that really is exhibiting that. You might be. And if you are, you can, you know, email me and tell me I'm wrong. But I think work (laughs) is hard. (laughs) I think people are broken and systems are broken. And even if you're working in what you love, it is hard and it is work and there is toil. Um, And so I think that because people are like, oh, I must not be working my passion because it's hard. We have a bunch of people like going, is the grass greener over there? Is the grass greener over there? Maybe the grass is greener over there. it's supposed to be. I've been told that this should feel different than it does. It's just a lot of angst of if it's hard, it must not be right. And so trying to help people discern um, and how to listen for the voice of God of 
when do you stay and when mm. do you not stay? And when is it just hard because work is hard versus when is it hard because maybe your gifts and talents aren't suited for the work that you're doing? Um, another thing that the Western world has told us that's not quite right is you work so you can be finished. Mm. And so if you think of um, a lot of songs are written about that. Um, everybody's working for the weekend. That's what popped in my head right yep. away, yeah. And phrases, TGIF. I mean, what if we had a phrase TGIM? Thank goodness it's Monday, um, right? We don't have that phrase, <laughs> no, right? <laughs> no, we have, yeah, a case and of the Mondays, so, yeah. Um, but if you look at the biblical theology of work, we were actually created to work. And it actually plays out. If you think about people that um, retire, um, they have a really... I'm not saying people shouldn't retire, but if you think about particularly people that retire early when Mm -hmm. maybe they're still have a whole lot of energy for work, they get a lot of retirees end up getting depressed. They feel a a real sense of what am I supposed to be doing all day? If you think about women um, who maybe have been full-time mothers and their last child leaves for college, they've essentially lost their vocational work because they were putting their vocational work into parenting. Um, lot of that's that's another sense of retirement in a way yeah. um, a lot of just gut-riching dissatisfaction um, because we actually were created to work and work might look differently as we hit different seasons and different ages sure. but if we change the if we change our construct from we're just working until we can finish working to we were actually created to work and so how might our work change over different seasons so work doesn't necessarily mean for pay. It work just means not leisure, not rest. Yeah. And so you find people who are retiring and maybe they play golf for a while and then maybe they'd be like, oh, this isn't as fulfilling as I thought it might be. And suddenly they're finding ways to work differently. So maybe they're um, sitting on boards or maybe they're helping younger people think about work or maybe they're getting more involved in some type of volunteer activity, Yeah. Um, which is still not rest, not leisure. It's work yeah. just in a different capacity. So. Anyway. So it's not in work necessarily to provide provision, but it's work because you're doing something. Correct. It is work in that it is the opposite of rest or leisure. It is taking your your um, time, your talents, and doing something productive. Hmm. So what would you say maybe the average type of person who comes through a Nashville Institute for Faith and Work uh, program or that comes through your doors, what, what what's an average person look like? How old are they? Where are they at in their career? Is it is it wide ranging? Is it pretty specific? It is across the board. I think it's super interesting to see who's most drawn to us. And um, the youngest person in Gotham we've had is twenty six. The oldest is 74. And that's a 10-month program, so that's a commitment. It's our most extensive commitment. The youngest person we've had is 26. The oldest is 74. The 74-year-old, I so greatly admire her um, because when I'm 74, I want some maybe some increased leisure time too. I will not lie. (laughs) (laughs) This woman launched a nonprofit at age 74. Doing what? So incredible. Um, she is the president of a public housing association, and oh she is goodness. trying to find models 
to get people who traditionally, for structural reasons, have not been employable. She's trying to find ways to get them employable and to help them understand what employment will do for them. It's fascinating. Wow. Um, so I don't think there is a specific type person that comes. I will say um, people feel more drawn to this conversation um, that are working perhaps in more professional or creative jobs. And this this hasn't felt as relevant to blue-collar jobs. And I think that's probably frustrating and not quite right. And so mm. there is some discussion between us and some other cities of um, why is this conversation not um, feeling appealing to the person in blue-collar jobs. So I've not worked as much with people in blue-collar jobs. Um, Interesting, yeah. Well, if people are hearing this and they're, they want to get involved in this and they don't live in Nashville, is there a way they can interact with what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, we have some friendships with organizations just like mine in other cities. Um, our website is nifw.org, Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, um, nifw.org. But um, there's an organization similar to mine in Pittsburgh. There's one in Denver. There's initiatives developing in Austin. There's one in um, Dallas. There's an initiative in L.A. There's for sure one in um, uh, New York. There's stuff developing in Atlanta. So chances – this has become a bit of a um, movement. And so chances are there's some work like this going on in your own city. But certainly, um, we have resources, et cetera, on our homepage for people that aren't from Nashville. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yep, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Missy. That was awesome. If you guys want to hear more about the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, she said it, and I'll say it again, nifw.org. They have tons of resources. Now, if you want to come to Nashville and be a part of any of those events, highly recommend it. Um, also, take a picture on Instagram of your favorite pivot and tag me at Andrew Osinga, hashtag Tokens Pivot, and you can win tickets to the Thanksgiving at the Ryman Tokens show. Would love to see you there. That's it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. Now go do something awesome. <laughs>